Scripture reading for tonight's lesson will be from the book of Judges, the second chapter, verses 10 through 15. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Good evening. It's good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We are thankful for those who are here and those who might be visiting with us. We're certainly grateful for your presence. We invite you to be taking out your Bibles. We're going to be studying from the Old Testament this evening from the book of Judges. Over the next several weeks, in fact, we will be looking at the book of Judges. If you, if you would like a little bit of homework, then uh, I would encourage you to go home this week and Read the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges is a pretty exhilarating and exciting roller coaster ride uh, following the book of Joshua, which a few weeks ago we did uh, sort of an overview of the book of Joshua. And that was kind of all leading up to this series that we're going to have at looking at various judges. We're not going to take the time to look at all of the judges in the book of Judges, but we are going to look at some of the highlights, if you will, or maybe if we're being more truthful, it would be some of the low points in Israel's history. But we're going to be looking at this and trying to appreciate what is going on here and what the Scriptures have to teach for us. Because I think this has a great deal of application for us. We are kind of in the midst of a transition point, it seems, in our culture and our society that we look back at certain events in our history, and I'm talking about our country and our nation, and we have some who say we need to get rid of those things. We need to kind of erase that from our collective memory. We need to get rid of statues or whatever it might be, and we need to remove those public reminders of our nation's history. Maybe we should put them in a museum, some might say. But no matter what your opinion might be about those landmarks and whether we ought to preserve those things or put them in a museum or, or whatever it might be, the fact is history has an important role to play as a people, as a people group. You look at the book of Joshua and Judges and these formulate the books of Israel's history. And they were meant to serve as a memorial, as a reminder to avoid certain things that they should not repeat. And as the cliche goes that if we don't study history, then we are certainly doomed to repeat it. I believe that is certainly true. And so we need to study not just our own history, we need to study the history of the people of God and the people of Israel. And that is why there are books in the Old Testament and New Testament that deal with history. Because we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from the things that they did. And we can learn to avoid them. The book of Judges is a companion book to the book of Joshua. It quickly summarizes in the first couple of chapters of Judges, kind of the last half of the book of Joshua. And then we're going to be looking at Judges chapters 1 and 2 this evening. And so we're going to be kind of rehashing a little bit of old ground, some ground that we're probably familiar with a little bit. But what 
this also does. The book of Judges in the opening two chapters, it really sets up and serves as sort of the prologue to the book. That this is the prologue of what we can expect throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And I think we're going to see that it's not all that promising. Even though the people of Israel, they were coming into the promised land, they should have been faithful to God. They should have been expecting to receive God's blessing and His care, and He helped them obtain this land. That should have promoted faithfulness to God's Word, to God's commandments. However, it shows that they became very unfaithful. They compromised. They exasperated God's goodness. And this becomes a roller coaster ride of mountains and valleys, of good and evil, of repentance and backsliding. The book of Judges is a book that we need to study because it has a lot of relevance for us. And while we might note, we don't want to ignore some of the positive things that Israel did during this time, that they were not afraid to ask for God's help and guidance when they knew they needed it. They turned to God. They would repent and be faithful for a while. We don't want to ignore any of that. But I think what we will see here is the book of Judges, it begins on a fairly positive note, but then it quickly changes. And that sets up as this prologue what we our expectations for the rest of the book of Judges. And while Israel does start out with good intentions, there is something that we learn very quickly, and that is this lesson that compromises lead to further unfaithfulness. You're going to be very bored with the charts tonight. Because I hope that you will have your Bibles open and you will read the passages with me. We're not going to be going very far tonight in our Bibles. We're going to be pretty much staying right here in the book of Judges. So I hope you'll follow along. And if you don't, then listen intently. And perhaps close your eyes and let the, the words paint a picture for you in your mind. In Joshua or in Judges chapter 1, in Judges chapter 1, notice how the whole book starts. It starts with the people of Israel starting out very well. But this lesson that we need to understand that compromise leads to further unfaithfulness, that's going to be something that we see throughout this whole chapter. And what you see in verse 1, now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? They ask a very important question. Let's give credit to where credit is due. They ask the right question. Who is going to go up? Who's going to lead us? That's a very noble question to recognize that there might be limitations in what they are able to do. I think with the implication that they understood they needed God. They needed divine help in taking the land of Canaan. They knew that God had been saying that it would be Him who leads them and takes the promised land and gives them the promised land. They understood that, I think, very well. And the Lord said in verse 2, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. That Judah is going to be the first tribe that would lead Israel. And others would follow suit. Judah would then ask Simeon, you'll notice in verse 3, Then Judah said to Simeon, His brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. It starts off really well, doesn't it, here? They have asked God, who goes first? God responds and tells them Judah. Judah says, okay, let's go. And they take the tribe of Simeon with them, and they go and they have a success here very early on. It's a great, this is probably the best four verses in the whole book. 
Because it's untainted at this point, isn't it? But soon you will notice that there are some things that begin to happen. That even though Judah had formed this alliance with Simeon, they conquer the Perizzites, they defeat 10,000 men at Bezek, the compromises settle in. At verse 5, it says, They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. There's a, a good Bible trivia question for some of our Bible class teachers to ask. That they cut off his thumbs and big toes, and that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? That seems a little peculiar. Why did they just not kill him? Because certainly God had expected whenever the children of Israel to go into the land, He had told them multiple times that they were to leave no one alive. In the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to just jot this down or turn over there with me, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and in verse 16, as Moses was addressing this same uh, generation of people that would go into the promised land and capture it, In Deuteronomy chapter 20 and in verse 16, only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Uh Uh-oh. We have trouble now, don't we? Because... Here is Adonai Bezek, supposedly the leader of these people, and they only cut off his thumbs and big toes. They don't utterly destroy him. They allow him to remain alive. It says in verse 7, Adonai Bezek, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Notice the text that it simply says he died there. It doesn't say that he was executed. It doesn't say that he was killed as a prisoner of war. He simply died there in Jerusalem. The text, in fact, I think, seems to indicate that he was just allowed to live until he died. I would suggest to you that this is the first compromise that the people of Israel really allow in the book of Judges. And it might seem subtle. It might seem very small. that They killed killed 10,000 men They've only allowed one to remain, but that was one one mark of disobedience against God. And one mark of disobedience is one mark too many. But there's something else that I think we need to recognize and pick up on based on Judah's and Simeon's actions here. Their tribes, as they were going into the land... There's something that Adonai Bezek says that these 70 kings with their big thumb, with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, that how they used to wrap, pick up the scraps from under Adonai Bezek's table. He says, As I have done, so God has repaid me. This was obviously how Adonai Bezek carried out marks of justice. And I think what ought to alarm us even more than that they left this man alive was that now there's been a shift in Israel's thinking. That they're not going to carry out justice in the way God has prescribed. They're going to execute justice in the way that their enemies have executed justice. And there's a difference there, isn't there? 
that they are shifting away from what God has said and they are becoming more like the people that God did not want them to become. They are behaving and adopting the practices of the people that God is actually removing from the promised land. This is again to further illustrate the matter of compromise that quickly characterizes the children of Israel. And Adonai Bezeki recognizes that this is repayment for the things that he has done. And so the people of Israel, they have begun to execute judgment in the way that they see fit. Not in the way that God wanted them to, but just like the Canaanites did themselves. They felt that their own brand of justice was better punishment than God's plan. But then the author moves on. In Judges chapter 1 and verse 8, he then describes how the tribe of Judah would then center around Caleb. And so they kind of battle back, if you will. Caleb is one from the book of Numbers. You'll remember that he was faithful. He and Joshua that they tried to persuade the children of Israel to be faithful, to go to the promised land before the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And in Judges chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter, Akesh, for a wife. And so Caleb begins to become a rallying point for the people of Judah and how they were going into the land and capturing it. And you learn about Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who valiantly led the people in battle. And so Caleb gave him his daughter in marriage. Caleb becomes this point of fairness of someone who is faithful to his word. He treats his daughter with kindness. When she asks for a certain part of the land, he gives it to her. But then we begin to see more compromises made. In verse 16, says, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephah and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. It seems like a bizarre statement here, doesn't it? That they're having all the success. They're taking the cities. But now, all of a sudden, they've come into the valleys. They were... They've taken the high country, the hill country. But now they can't take the valleys. Typically, we think of someone who has the high ground as being successful in battle. If you have watched Star Wars, then you will know that. Right? For my Star Wars fans. But we think of someone who has the high ground as someone who is going to be successful. And so if someone is engaging in battle in the valleys, you would think that they would have the upper hand. But now the people of the valleys are running out the people of the hills. 
And we might be scratching our head thinking, why did this happen? Wasn't, wasn't Judah supposed to be the one who led the people of Israel? They were. But what happens here? It's very subtle. And it's something that we need to just stop and we need to do a little bit of backtracking into the book of Joshua for a moment. In the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 17, in Joshua the 17th chapter, and in verse 16, in Joshua chapter 17 and in verse 16, it says here on this occasion, the sons of Joseph, that's the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a num numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its farthest borders, it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. You see what's happened? Judah they got a little ahead of themselves, we might say. Simeon, they became boastful in their own power. Joshua had told the people of Israel, it's going to be Ephraim and Manasseh that go and lead the way to take the people of the valley, the people with the iron chariots. But in the book of Judges, we see that Judah and Simeon, they go down into the valleys, but they are unable. It's not that God failed them. It's that Israel has compromised. They're not paying attention. They're not listening. Judah was never supposed to fight in the valleys. The devil is in the details, isn't it? That's something that we have to learn about God's commandments and what God expects of us. He wants us to pay attention to the small things just as much as the big things. Judah had stumbled at God's promises and assurances. They may have thought since they have taken the highlands and they would have no trouble in the valleys. What we need to stop and recognize in our own life that we are going to be unable to drive out our enemy, the devil, if we are only haphazardly paying attention to God. Haphazard, partial obedience is enough disobedience to cause us to be destroyed. What we see is this principle time and time again in the book of Judges, but especially in this opening chapter, that compromise leads to further unfaithfulness. It leads to our destruction. And that point is continued to be made in this first chapter of Judges. Because you continue on in verse uh, 20. It says, Then as they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. To the day of author of the book of Judges. They did not completely obey. What you see is that this disobedience, the compromises that were initially set, that it has this trickle-down effect. It begins to affect every tribe. And if you continue on in verse 22, likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the city entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But... Such a big word, isn't it? But 
they let the man and all his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. You see what they failed to do was completely eradicate the problem. They just relocated it, didn't they? Compromise leads to unfaithfulness. In verse 27, But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages. In verse uh, 28, It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. It just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahel. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon and all these other places, he says. In verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Verse 34, Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. So now you have the people of God the tribe of Dan, they are actually forced out of the territory of the land that God was promising them. We see this principle that once you compromise, it leads to more disobedience, it leads to more unfaithfulness, and it has this trickle-down effect that my disobedience can affect your life. It can affect your decisions. You might say, well, if He can do it, then I can do it. And what might seem like small moves away from what God wants can lead to disastrous effects. Disastrous effects. Eight of the nine tribes expressly mentioned in chapter 1 Eight of the nine tribes are expressly mentioned as having compromised and failed to obey. And Simeon is the only one that is kind that kind of gets attached to Judah. So nine out of the nine actually are disobedient. Nine out of the twelve tribes. Nine out of twelve had failed to do what God said. And so you come to chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2 and in verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you... You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed Me. What is this you have done? What a scathing rebuke from the angel of the Lord. You have not obeyed Me. How would you like it if the Lord appeared to you and said, I've given everything to you that I promised. I did absolutely everything I said I was going to do. I even did more, and you still have not obeyed me. I think I'd feel about that big. That's the opening of this book. That just indicates a little bit of what we're going to see throughout the book of Judges. 
We cannot afford to fool ourselves into thinking that partial obedience is real obedience. Partial obedience is full disobedience. And ultimately, this led to a generation that would grow up that would not know God. This leads to a generation that would only know a compromised position before God. In verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. And I think what we have to just stop and think about for a moment is that from our limited perspective, from where we stand and where we sit, compromise doesn't look bad, does it? It looks like maybe a wise thing. Think about the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. How they saw this man coming out of the city and they're like, hey, let's talk to him. Let's utilize him. Let's make him a spy. And let's promise him that if he gives us the information we want, we'll keep him alive. He can go relocate and settle down somewhere else. We'll get him out of our hair. We won't, you know, both sides end up being happy. Compromise looks pretty alluring, doesn't it? We might even say that was pretty smart of them. That's the lure that the devil wants us to fall for. From our limited perspective, sin and compromise and disobedience never looks as bad as it really is. We can rationalize it all the day long. and We can seek to justify any behavior that we might want. It might be a choice of friends that we have and the people that we hang around with. Try talking to a young person about their choice of friends and how they need to find a better group to associate with and you probably have a long discussion on your hand because it's hard for them to see that. Their perspective is limited. Their life experience is limited. Even though you might be able to see, hey, this is not going to end well for you. Hobbies that we devote so much time to, that we are so invested in financially, interest, the time that we takes might take us away from the people of God. It might take us away from being able to assemble for worship and to be strengthened in our faith. People lose their soul over sports, over hobbies, over things that just waste their time. Addictions that might be stumbled upon, pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, has a way of being something that might be accidental, compromised, that we can then eventually rationalize, and then we become so addicted to it that we start seeking it out. It might begin just as a small step but it can lead to a world of hurt, trouble, and unfaithfulness before God. Compromise just one step away from what God says. It leads to a world of unfaithfulness. Not to mention those who might look at our example and might say, if they can do it, then I can do it we might end up being the leader of a bunch of people towards unfaithfulness to God. That's a message that we learn from the book of Judges. Something else that we need to also recognize from the book of Judges is that in Judges chapter 2, in verse 10, after that generation had passed away, there comes this next generation of people who do not know God. 
And so in verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. What else would we expect by this point? They have become this people desensitized to sin. They are so used to compromise. They don't even know who God is. They don't know what God has done. And so they're going to turn to the idols of the Canaanites that have, they have allowed to live in the land. And they forsook the Lord, it says in verse 12. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger because of the proximity of these people and the idols. They turned to idolatry. Verse 13, So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord's the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. This people that God had made a covenant with that He would bless them and give them these promises, give them this land, give them life. They have utterly rejected. They have forsaken the Lord. And there are, I think, at least four points that we need to see here. That no one generation rides the coattails of another. Each generation, each person is going to stand before God on their own. Think about what that means. That maybe you're a second or third or fourth generation Christian. But that doesn't mean just because your grandparents were members of the Lord's church and had been baptized and were faithfully following God, just because you have grandparents who were faithful doesn't mean that you are going to be faithful. I, I have... Um, I, I think I can say I'm at least a third or fourth generation Christian in a lot of ways, if I can use that terminology. had a great-grandfather who was a gospel preacher, or a great-great-grandfather who was a gospel preacher. I had a great-grandfather who was an elder in the church and a, gra a grandfather who was a deacon in the church. Come have a lot of heritage, if you will. But that doesn't mean that I get to rest on their coattails into heaven. I have to make a decision to serve God. We need to have a faith of our own. Just because you go to a church where your grandparents went to church or where your parents does not mean that you will be right with God. We have to have a faith of our own. We need to be thankful for the examples and influences in our life. But we have to build our own faith. We have to build our own faith and our own convictions. One generation might have thought that they trained the next generation. But we have to recognize that no matter how much training we do, there comes a decision time for that next generation. Each generation and each person will stand for their own decisions. And then we have to also beware that the wicked generation that we live among, they can affect us more than what we realize. How much does the world affect you? You probably are thinking, eh, 
maybe a little bit, but not a whole lot. That's when we have to be careful. If we let our guard down and we think, you know, the world doesn't affect us. I know that they're wrong. I know that they're going to hell. I know that they are displeasing to God. If we have that kind of attitude, then we need to be careful. And we need to heed the words of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8 and in verse 11, as Jesus was with his disciples, the Pharisees come out to him. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That Jesus is with his apostles and he's telling them, You need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And you have to love how Mark just adds that little note there in verse 14 about, We forgot to take the bread. Peter forgot to pack the lunch. <laughs> I don't know if it was Peter's fault. Let's just blame Peter. Seems like a likely character. But they began to discuss, it says in verse 16, with one another, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus is trying to get them to wake up to open their eyes, to open their ears, to open their mind, to see that they are being affected right now just in their line of questioning. They have been affected by the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, you need to be aware of the leaven of Pharisees and of Herod. And they're over here asking about who forgot the bread? Who forgot lunch? They didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they have been affected by the generation that they are living among. A wicked generation can affect us more than we even realize our questions that we might ask. We might be asking all the wrong questions because we have the wrong mindset, just as the apostles did. No one is immune from the wicked and evil influences of the generation that we grow up in. We have to answer for the compromises that we perhaps have made. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, another principle that we see. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 13, Paul says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I believe this sets down a principle that's important for us to see in Scripture is that with each generation it might be bad but another generation can make it worse. People will go from bad to worse. You think about how that has played out on a moral level in our society. As you can probably go back and watch just on in entertainment and TV shows that we have grown accustomed to seeing 
in the 50s and 60s, you could uh, watch Leave it to Beaver, right? You had the housewife who's in her dress and pearls and doing all the chores of a house. Welcome to reality, right? Um, not. But then, that was kind of the I- ideal family, wasn't it? But then, divorce becomes more common. And so divorce is something that is entered into our entertainment. Where you have children who are going back and forth between mom and dad. You have fornication that is seen in the TV shows. Homosexuality and transgenderism, the things that we're fighting in our culture today. It begins with a moral decay. From bad to worse. Religiously, whenever people begin to say, well, let's just compromise. We can have unity even in our division. Even whenever we have differences, we can push those aside and we can have unity in the name of Christ. Which ultimately rejects the Bible as authoritative in our lives. And then... We raise a generation of people who don't even believe in the Bible. And what we have to stop and be acutely aware of is that the way to combat wickedness is by faithfulness to the Word of God. As Paul was writing to Timothy there in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13 that these people are going to grow from bad to worse, he says, you, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the value of the Scriptures. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The way that we're going to combat this evil, wicked generation is by planting our foot firmly by the Word of God where we will not be moved, where we will not be shaken or deterred. And then finally, we have to also recognize the real battle. That is, we are only one generation away from apostasy. We are one generation away. That's something that we learn here in the book of Judges. That this compromised generation in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 1 and 2, the people who had crossed the river Jordan on dry ground, that they have heard Moses speak to them. They have seen Joshua lead them. They've seen heroes like Caleb be faithful That generation did not train up the next generation adequately because of their compromise. Because of their disobedience that they allowed. They did not fully give themselves to God. And so the generation that followed them strayed away into complete apostasy. We have a fight on our hands for the next generation of young people in the Lord's church. Young people, as they grow up, they leave the church because we perhaps have ignored important moral, social, and fundamental questions of faith and behavior and morality. Your teenagers ask the hard and difficult questions. Don't brush it off. Engage in discussion with them. Talk with them about things. Talk with them about God. The existence of God. Know what they're being taught in school. When evolution is being pushed 
down their throat. You talk to them about how God created the heavens and the earth. And that it's reasonable to believe in the Bible when they hear otherwise. Talk to your children about moral standards, about the positive nature of marriage between a man and a woman. Teach them that there are only two genders. Something that we have to constantly be aware of that our time is fleeting, especially as parents. Our time is fleeting. Things don't slow down. If you are a parent of a teenager, then my prayers are with you. <laughs> but you think about, ask yourself, where will they be in five years? They're probably going to be out of your house. Maybe you're hoping that they are. Uh, but you're going to be thinking that they're going to be growing up. They're going to be making decisions on their own. And that your influence over them may not be what it is today. How much time do you have left to teach them and help them? Now, it's urgent. What are you doing to prepare them for heaven today? Right now? We are only one generation away. The book of Judges. That's the introduction to it. You may think, wow, that's a bummer. It's a sad book in a lot of ways. It's an exciting book in other ways. Because you do see glimpses of positive notes, of repentance and turning back to God, of relying upon Him. But what we learn from the outset is that we cannot afford to have the compromising spirit that Israel did during the days of the judges. We must demand and expect full, complete obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And so tonight, question is left for you to answer. And it's a question that only you can answer. Are you standing firm in the, with the Word of God? Are you remaining faithful to what God has said? Or have you compromised in your faith and your morals by turning to sin? And if you have, then you need to repent, for it's eternally too late. If you need to become a child of God tonight, we're here to help you. The water is ready. We want to help you come to Him. Whatever way we might be able to assist you, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?